Thank you, Ced, for reading that so well to us. Um, do turn to it in the church Bibles you want to follow and might help you what I'm saying. Um, but let's pray as well, because that definitely help us. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that as we look at it this morning, you'd help me to speak um, faithfully to what you're saying. And you'd guide us all by your spirit to hear what you want to say to us through it. In your name. Amen. Well, this passage is um, about, I guess, the tricky subject of church um, discipline. Is the PowerPoint not coming up? Oh, brilliant. Um, and um, that can be a bit of a minefield. Um, there's various ways that church discipline can go wrong. I think I want to sort of pinpoint to sort of three broad ways that church discipline can go wrong. Um, firstly, church discipline can be used as a kind of abuse of power. Um, when leaders or leadership within a church um, don't use it to sort of encourage proper behavior in line with what the Bible teaches, but use it to enforce their way and push people out that go against them. I'd been listening to a, a series of podcasts about um, a megachurch in America. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And that was a church that grew from the 90s, um, from a small congregation to be um, thousands and thousands of people. You know, sort of thing we dream of, isn't it, in terms of church success and so on. Um, and it did a lot of good things. But in the end, it all fell apart um, a few years ago because of um, accusations of bullying from the leadership. And one of those cases was um, apparently there are, there are people that are on the leadership team, what we, what we call the Church of England PCC, but they call it Board of Elders. Um, and there are a couple of people on that, that that disagree with one of the things that was being suggested, or at least were questioning that. Uh, and in the end, they were, they were disciplined by the, the church leadership in such a way that they were forced out and pushed out. Um, and the leader of the church afterwards, in a, in a talk shortly afterwards, stood up and said, um, they've been run over by the bus. Um, we want to push forward with growth and, by God's grace, to be a pile of bodies behind us in the bus afterwards. Which is quite a shocking phrase to use, um, especially when people realized later on that it was linked to these two people who have been pushed out. Sadly, church discipline can be used by leadership to abuse power, to get rid of those that disagree with them or they don't like or are causing trouble to them, rather than really living against what God wants. And that's not the kind of church discipline that Paul is calling for here. And you might think, well, why bother with church discipline at all? As a vicar, it's not something I relish ever having to do. Um, but it is necessary. Um, because if we don't have church discipline, you can have a failure to protect the church. This perhaps has been seen most clearly in recent years with failings over safeguarding and child protection. Many denominations um, have failed to deal with um, accusations of child abuse um, by leaders within the churches by clergy and so on. And because of that failure, more people have been abused as a result. And it's a terrible tragedy. Um, when discipline isn't carried out, it is a problem. It causes hurt, it causes pain, it causes suffering, it damages the church severely. But I think there's a third area which is maybe more subtle, and that's this, that in focusing too much on church discipline, we can give the impression that what matters more than anything else about coming into the church is becoming a good person. 
by um, highlighting church discipline, enforcing good behavior, we may give the wrong impression that you only, can only be part of the church if you get your behavior right in the first place. But of course we believe in a gospel of grace, that Jesus died for our sins. Paul himself, who wrote this, says elsewhere that um, Christ came for sinners, of which I am the worst. You know, he literally went around persecuting Christians, locking them up, having some of them killed. And yet God forgave him and enabled him to become part of the church. We must hold on to grace and not let um, a focus on church discipline give the wrong impression that you need to become perfect in order to become part of the church. So church discipline can be misused. It, when it's not used, it's a big problem. Um, but we need to get the balance right as well with grace. So what's going on in Corinthians? What is the issue here um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? We've, we've been looking at the book of Corinthians this year, um, much earlier in the year, and we've seen how Paul's been encouraging the church towards unity. We've seen how he's been um, reminding them of his, um, his mission in actually setting the church up in the first place, that he's a kind of father to them. Um, he has a sort of kind of authority over them. Um, he's reminding them about the centrality of the cross um, and the wisdom of the cross. Um, but now he tackles a, re- a particular issue that he's aware of. Uh, and the issue is basically this, that someone in the church is being sexually immoral. Um, the Greek word for this is porneia, where we get our word porn from. Um, and, and it's a very broad word, porneia. It means all kinds of different sexual immorality. It covers all, a multitude of sins, if you like. But a particular issue here he goes into detail of is that um, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, we don't know the details. We don't know if his father's still alive. Um, we, we don't know quite why he's doing this or what, what's going on and what the reasons are for it. Um, and it could be that he's doing it because he gets more money that way. Um, it could be because she was a young wife and very attractive. We, we don't know. Um, but Paul says that this is particularly bad because not only is it against the Christian way of doing things, but actually it's against cult- the cultural way of doing things generally. So in the Old Testament, it's clear, um, Leviticus, that you're not to sleep or marry your father's wife. And actually in Roman law as well, um, it's clear that you're not to marry your father's wife. Um, so both in the culture of the time and in the biblical teaching, it was, it was, a, it was a no-no. I checked this as well. Um, I'm not a lawyer, but I tried to check this in the law. Um, if you look at the back of the 1662 prayer book, which is the old, the old sort of Church of England prayer book, right on the back page, I don't know, if you were went to Church of England when you were younger and had the old-fashioned style of service, you might have got bored and looked at the back page. Um, it's got a list of who you're allowed to marry and who you're not allowed to marry. Some of you remember that? Um, and, and, um, and it says very clearly there, you're not allowed to marry your father's wife. Um, that's one of the people you're not allowed to marry. There's others like your sister and aunt and that sort of thing. Um, and actually, in British law as well, you're not allowed to marry your father's wife. Although he did change it in 1986. This is a technical thing. Um, so there are exceptions to that. So if you're, apparently the exceptions are if you're both over 21 and um, you, you weren't at home when your father was married to your wife when you were younger than 18, i.e. like she might, became some sort of mother figure to you, then you are then allowed to marry your father's wife under British law. Whether that's right or not, I don't want to go into. We haven't got time for that now to consider that. But that's the situation under British law. So it's still seen, on the whole, um, as, as being um, an immoral thing. Uh, and so Paul wants to say to them, how are you allowing this, something that's condemned across the board to be happening in the church? 
is Freudianism right? And Paul's bigger problem, I think, is actually not so much this individual, but actually the arrogance of the church. Um, it says in verse 2 um, that they're proud about it, they're arrogant about it, they're puffed up about it. Um, at least he's saying here that you, you think that you know better than me and you're ignoring what I told you before about what's allowed and not allowed in the church. That, that's what might be what he means about the arrogance. Um, but it could mean even more that that's sort of somehow that they think this is a really good thing this is happening in the church and going on in the church. So what, what exactly was going on? Why, why do they think this might be a good thing or this was okay? It's hard to know exactly why. We're not told exactly why, but different people have speculated um, over the years. Um, and one idea might be that, and this was suggested by a lot of the ancient preachers in the 3rd and 4th century, is that it could be that the person that was committing this was um, a teacher in the church, and he was respected. They thought he was a really good teacher, maybe very um, eloquent, they didn't want to lose that. Or, or maybe he was a very likable person, a very charming person, they didn't want to lose, lose him for that. Or, or maybe he was, um, thinking about finances earlier on, maybe he was someone who gave a lot of money to the church, you know, you don't want to lose that, you know, suddenly there's no money because you've kicked out this person for doing this thing. So it could have been personal reasons. Uh, and if we're honest, you know, we often don't mind people being disciplined if we don't like them. Um, I read something somewhere that um, if you're a surgeon, you're, mu you're much more likely to be complained about, not because you're bad at surgery, but because you're slightly difficult with people. You, know, you can be a brilliant surgeon, um, but sort of a bit off with people, and they're much more likely to complain about you. But you can be a really bad surgeon and very charming, and no one will complain about you. Um, that's true, isn't it? And actually with leaders as well, people don't always want to complain about a leader, even though they're doing things that are clearly bad, because they like them, because they respect them, because they're seen as successful or talented. In the Church of England, um, in the last century, there was a guy called Peter Ball, who was um, first of all Bishop of Lewis and then um, Bishop of Gloucester. And he was a very well-respected person. He even had, like, the Prince of Wales, I think, was friends with him, and he had a TV series about something he was doing. Um, and all, all of the people thought he was a really great person. But actually, behind the scenes, he was abusing young men really badly. And some of those allegations of that abuse did come to light, um, a number, in fact, but because he was seen as being so successful and so talented and such a prominent person, the accusations were put down and dismissed. And as a result, further people were abused. Um, there's a real danger in putting people on a pedestal thinking they're great just because of their talents and not being willing to admit that there could be serious things wrong with them that need to be dealt with. So that may be the reason why this person was um, allowed to carry on in this way. But it could be a, a more general problem with the church and attitude with the church. So if you turn over to chapter 6, Paul um, says there in verse um, 12 that one of the things that people are saying is that I have the right to do anything. I have the right to do anything. Uh, and it could be that actually what's going on with the church is there's a kind of distortion of the gospel going on. So they're saying actually that... Um, 
Paul, you, you say that when you, when you come to Christ, you're no longer under the law. You no longer have to follow the, the rules and regulations. You don't need, don't need to get circumcised. Um, you don't need to eat special foods. You don't have to follow special holidays and so on. The Old Testament law is no longer there. And it's, they're taking that to a kind of extreme. We're now free. We're now free of all kinds of law. We can do whatever we like. That's what Christ has done. You, you know, Christ died for our sins, so we don't have to worry about sinning. Um, you're not saved by good works. You're saved by grace. So we don't need to worry about doing good works. Um, we can celebrate the, the liberation we have to do whatever we like. And, and, and this guy is sleeping with his father's wife. Everyone condemns that, but we're free. It's a kind of celebration of this. It, but of course, all that's a distortion of the gospel. But the gospel is not about tolerating things. It's not about saying anything goes. The gospel is saying that sin is horrible. Sin is terrible. Jesus had to die for sin. But because he died, you can be forgiven. The guilt can be washed away. You can be cleansed and brought into the kingdom of God. You can become a child of God no matter what your past, no matter what things have gone wrong. But in becoming a Christian, in being forgiven, in knowing that Jesus has died for the horror of your sins, you're called to be transformed as well, to be changed as well. Paul has this um, slightly complex um, analogy with the Passover. It may be that when Corinthians, when he's writing the letter, it was actually Passover time. At the end of the letter, he says, I'm going to move on from here at Pentecost, which is a few weeks after Passover. So it could be that he's writing this at Passover. And Passover, if you remember, is the celebration of when um, God rescued Israel from Egypt. The, 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 the lambs were sacrificed, the blood was put on the, wall, on the doorposts and the, the lintels, um, and the angel of death that kept, was there to judge the Egyptians passed over the Israelites. And then they were free to leave Egypt, to be get away from slavery. Um, but God, in taking them away from slavery, as we've been seeing with the Ten Commandments, brings them out to a new life, to be a new kind of people, free from slavery to Egypt, but actually free to live the way God calls them to live. And he gave them the Ten Commandments, didn't he, to, to show them the kind of ways he wanted them to live, to create a new kind of people, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, sorry, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And, and Paul says, look, you as Christians, Jesus is your Passover. Jesus is the Passover lamb that was sacrificed. Not to rescue you from being slaves in Egypt or slaves of anyone else, but being slaves of sin and the fear of death. Jesus has rescued you. And just as when you have Passover, you, you remember it by eating unleavened bread, because when they had to flee from Egypt, they didn't have time for the bread to rise. And I don't know if you you make bread. I know everyone just buys bread from Aldi and Asda and so on. But if you ever made bread, so you, have, you have to put yeast in it and then it, then it rises. That takes time. And then you bake it. But you didn't have time. So they, they had unleavened bread. They just baked it quickly and it's flat bread. Um, so part of the Passover celebration was to, to have unleavened bread. So they'd go through the house and then get rid of all the yeast and all the leavened bread beforehand. And that became symbolic of getting rid of the, the wickedness, the evil, the sin in our lives. And so Paul says to the Christians, look, Jesus is your Passover. You need to clear out the old leaven of wickedness and evil and bring in the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's what you're called to be in the gospel. You're called to live a kind of different life. 
So that's what was going wrong in the church, a kind of distortion of the gospel. Um, so what kind of way was Paul saying that they needed to go about actually church discipline? Oops, go the wrong way. What were the aims of church discipline? Well, firstly, the aim was actually the salvation of the offender. If you look at the end of verse 5, it says, so that in his spirit he may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, a few a couple of verses beforehand, he talks about um, handing him over to Satan. Did you hear that bit? That's a sort of strange line. Um, and, and literally, um, in, in the Greek, it says, and that his flesh may be destroyed. And that sort of phrase, particularly on the Sunday before Halloween, sort of sounds a bit weird and wacky, doesn't it? And especially when you see all the things up on people's houses at the moment. What, what does he mean by handing over to Satan and his flesh being destroyed? What's, go, what's going on there? Um, well, again, there's different interpretations, but I think what probably Paul is saying here, and what seems to be fitting with the rest of the passage, is he's saying it needs to be put out of the church. At the end, in verse 13, he quotes Deuteronomy, expel um, the wicked person from among you. And being put out of the church means being put back into the world. And, and Jesus and Paul both say, you know, the world, the prince of this world is Satan. Jesus rescues you from the world controlled by Satan to be part of his body, the church. But if you're not going to live in the ways that God calls you in the church, then they need to be put back into the world to be reminded of what they're missing out on. So Paul is saying, look, expel this person for his own good so that he may, may miss being a part of the church, may miss having the fellowship and the support and the care of others, uh, and may realize actually that what he's doing is wrong. And so turn away from that and come back to God and come back to Christ. Paul is not saying that by expelling this person, he'll be destroyed forever. He's saying by expelling them, hope, the hope is he might turn back eventually to Christ and see the error of his ways. So the aims of church discipline always needs to be about the salvation of the offender. And I think if you look at what Jesus says about church discipline, the focus there is very much that as well. But secondly, Paul is also concerned about the protection of the church's culture and values. Again, he goes back to this issue of yeast and bread. Um, so he says, don't you know that a small amount of yeast affects the whole batch of dough? So again, if you ever did baking bread, you put, it's quite a small amount of yeast you put in, just a teaspoon or something, in this big bowl of, of dough. And yet it makes all the dough rise. There's a big effect. And Paul is saying that if you have people living clearly, publicly, wicked, in wicked ways within the church, particularly if they're prominent people, that will have an effect on the rest of the church. That will say to people, this kind of behavior is okay. It will undermine the kind of values, the kind of culture that Christ wants for his church. And Paul is not just talking about sexual immorality. That's the particular case that I'm here, but he goes on to, to list some other things as well. Um, I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. Uh, and the other things he chooses to list um, are probably chosen because they're problems with the culture of Corinth at the time. Corinth was seen as a particularly wicked place, even worse than most of the other Roman areas at the time. Um, it was a place where there were lots of people that were entrepreneurial but trying to make lots of money. Um, it was a place where there was lots of prostitution and um, that kind of um, behavior and lots of sexual morality. 
but also the things he chooses also link quite closely with the Ten Commandments. If you're thinking we did a series on the Ten Commandments and finished after five, um, I'm now going to do the next five or some of the next five very quickly. <laughs> but we probably will come back to the rest of the five later on. But um, So let, let me go through the list, the list he gives. So there is sexual immorality. He mentions that. That links with the Seventh Commandments where it says do not commit adultery, which is a particular example of sexual morality. So he says, you know, don't have anything to do with people like that. And I say in Corinth, that was a big issue. Um, he also talks about greed. Um, the actual word in Greek here is, is literally more havers. You know, people that want to have more. More power, more status, more money. Uh, and this was an entrepreneurial city where, where that was the focus of people. They wanted to get more and more. They wanted to progress in life, to do better in life. They didn't really care about other things getting in the way of that. And of course, the Tenth Commandment is do not covet. You know, do not want to have more. Not, do not want to have what other people have. Um, and then in swindling, um, this is really about trying to sort of con people out of things. Or could have been about, you know, charging more than you should do, or paying less than you should do, or tricking people into giving you money that they shouldn't really need to give you. Um, it's a kind of robbery, a kind of theft. Fits with the Eighth Commandment. And again, it was common in Corinth because that was the kind of place where people were out to make more and more. Um, idolatry. Corinth was full of temples that people worshipped idols. And of course, that links with the Second Commandment. And Paul will talk a lot more about that in chapters 8 to 10. And then slander. Um, the Ninth Commandment is do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Um, in a place where people wanted to gain status, one way that people would do that is to put others down. To go around saying bad things about other people, whether they're true or not, whether they need to be said or not. And Paul says that all these kind of behaviors, they're the sort of things that we don't want in the church. They go against the Ten Commandments, they cause pain and hurt, break relationships, um, and cause all sorts of problems. We're called to a different kind of life. We're not called to a culture of toleration, but a culture of transformation. Seeking to bring people from where they are in the world into a changed lifestyle that is common with what Christ calls for his church. You see, church discipline is about dealing with the people inside, not the people outside. Paul finishes by saying that I'm not to judge those outside the church. That's for God to do. But we are called to judge those in the church for their salvation and their good, but also to protect the culture and the values of the church so that we can be a community that is the salt of the earth, the light of the world, but stands out as different, as transformed. But as we think about that, we need to be careful how we apply it I think Paul particularly would want it to be applied to people that are prominent and established in the church already because those are the ones that have the most negative influence those are the ones we should most expect to be living a transformed life but in a church as well we're also seeking the lost aren't we we're seeking to draw new people in people that may be coming from lifestyles and behaviors that are way off what Christ wants and Jesus, of course, hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners and so on. He wanted to reach them. 
He told that parable about the lost sheep, didn't he? That the shepherd would go over after the lost sheep that had been lost from the flock and brought him home. And there's a celebration in heaven when, the, when the, someone turns away from their sins and back to God. So actually in talking about church discipline, we don't want to say to, to people that are coming new into the church, you know, you must change per- instantly and perfectly and become the, the, exactly the kind of person you need to be. We need to be patient with people, gentle with people. But the hope is that as they join a church that is established where the values of the gospel are really lived out, that they too will be transformed in the way they live their lives and become increasingly a part of the church in that sense, as well as knowing the great news that in Christ our sins are forgiven. And even those that fall away from the church through sin can know that in Christ there is a way back because he died for our sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage. It's not an easy one to grapple with. Help us to be wise with church discipline, not to um, fail to carry it out, but not to use it for the wrong purposes either. Help us, most of all, to seek to the salvation of those who may be going against your will, and also the protection of the values and culture of the church that you call for. In your name we pray. Amen.